I'm Carla with Grace to Walk, and these are just some thoughts on a Sunday. And what I do in these weekly updates is I uh, give a little overview of where we're at in helping some Afghan Christians in their immigration journey, and uh, also just share a few thoughts for the week. And today's title is the benefits or the blessings of associations. And um, <laughs> this is uh, the way I got involved in this uh, kind of unusual situation was because of a, an association. I uh, did a review on a, a book called Spirit of the Rainforest by Mark Andrew Ritchie. He sent me, this is, when was it? I think it was back in 2015. I think it was right before I started the apologetics program. Um, he s replied to, he would interact on the, um, the reviews on Amazon. This is back when you could, which you're actually not supposed to do, but he did anyway. And uh, he said, oh, great review. Would you like to review another one of our, my books? And um, so he sent me his book, uh, My Trading Bible. And that kind of um, started our uh, association, connected with him on Facebook. And uh, I've done a, a couple of projects for him since then. I've uh, just work-related, you know, I've uh, converted some of his books to Kindle and digital and done a few other things. And just an FYI, that uh, book, God in the Pit, or not God in the Pits, it's my trading Bible. I reviewed that, and um, this is just kind of a short story. I had, like I said, I had just started the apologetics program. This is 2015, and every semester I took a special topic class from William Lake Craig. He would come and do like a one-week special topic, and uh, it was, what was it, like five days a week for, five days for one week, and it was like three hours, I think, and in the middle of the week, like on a, on Wednesday, we would uh, go out to dinner, and his wife came along, his wife Jan would come along, and so that first um, semester that I took it and in that first like evening out I was sitting next to his wife Miss Jan and I was talking to her and I was asking her what she did and she basically she's kind of she kind of coordinates and organizes uh, just takes care of everything else so he can focus on you know reading and writing and prepping for debates but she's like besides that besides managing him, um, she also plays the stock market. And so she's telling me about this. I was like, oh, okay. So during that week, there had been some discussion about, we were actually going over William Lane Craig's book On Guard, which is apologetic arguments. We spent three days on the cosmological argument. I was just like, I, I can't even, this is supposedly like his easiest book. And I was, again, I had just entered, entered the program. I had been a business major as an undergraduate was like completely out of my depth but I had been um, following Michael Heiser's work for a while and uh, we, there was some comment about the Trinity and he said well you know the Jews didn't have this understanding other than a monotheistic God and I said no actually there was there was a concept of monetary monotheism because I knew and I knew this because I had been following Michael Heiser's work and so I brought some resources that talk about, um, I can't remember, I think he was researching the divine name or something like that, and Michael Heiser had several of those things, and so I had just gotten uh, Michael Heiser's book, uh, which was, when was it? The Unseen Realm. It, that's the bigger one, and The Supernatural is a smaller one. I have reviews of both of those on my channel, and I had been sent that book to review it, but I had been sent it like... I got it like the week before I started graduate school. I knew I wasn't gonna have any time to read it. And I was feeling kind of guilty about that. So I, um, cause the graduate program had tons of reading. It was just really intense. So I thought, okay, I'll give it to Dr. Craig. And then he can have that as a resource. So I was gonna give him the book, Unseen Realm, along with the other resources I had for this thing that he was researching. And I was thinking, you know, Miss Jan said she likes the stock, she is into the stock market. I'll give her Mark's book, My Trading Bible. So I'm flipping through it just to see, because I take notes in my books, and I just want to see if there were any notes that I wanted to translate over, like on paper that I wanted to keep. And I get to the appendix, which I guess I hadn't read when I read through the book. And Mark 
actually was in a philosophy of religion class with William Lake Craig back in the 70s. And he just, he was just talking about, you know, my, because in my trading Bible, it's about, um, it's about trading and commodities and stock market, but he gives like commentary on the side for Christians. Like, this is what it's like, the stock trading world is like, you know, people are going to be complete wolves and cheat you and they're not even going to think twice about it. And so those are some of the, the side commentary that he gives in addition to stock advice in, in the book. And uh, in the back, he says, if you're interested in more of these, uh, you know, Christian comments I'm making or these apologetic arguments I, that I'm making, then, you know, go to, he recommended reading the work of Lee Strobel and William Lake Craig. And then he was talking about how he had been in, uh, gave a couple of stories about William Lake Craig when they were in, um, I guess it was, must have been an MDiv class or something, uh, program or something. So anyway, I gave him, I went to, um, went to the class when I gave him the book to give to his wife. I said, I said, did you know about this? Did you know that you're mentioned in this book? And he said, no. So I was reading what Mark had said about it and, you know, the class was laughing because it was kind of funny. But Mark actually has some stories about William Lee Craig. He said that um, when they would get assignments in class, they would have to try to be, the, go get to the library first because if, if, <laughs> um, Dr. Craig got there, obviously he wasn't doctor then, but if he got there first, he would like have all the books and all the resources. And so they'd have to get there first. So anyway, associations, yes. But that's how I, that's how I met Mark to begin with. I just did a review on his book and then one thing led to the other. And he saw a Bible study that I did on Job 19. He said, great teaching. Do you want to teach a, a women's class in Pakistan? I was like, sure, I had no idea where things would lead to and um next thing you know we're like trying to help afghans escape the taliban and find immigration paths so that is just kind of a roundabout way of how we got involved but the other person that mark uh pulled into this is his friend don shire they go way back um i don't even know how far back i think don has some stories if he hasn't shared but uh he's known mark for a long time and um, he has a ministry, uh, Donshire Ministries, and it's at donshireministries.org. And if you would like to donate and help any of our people, then you can go to donshireministries.org and select ways to walk. And uh, any money donated to that will, will go to our people. So anyway, that's a little bit about this. But I started doing weekly updates back in January because... Um, I had been sharing some updates with my apologetics group. We have a Facebook group. And when I first got involved in this, I actually did a, just kind of did a live stream because I was, it sounds funny now, but I was, I got this out of the blue contact that just, I, it was just blowing my brain a little bit that I was having these kinds of conversations with these types of people. And not these types of people, but the people that could go in and extract people out of Af Afghanistan. I got a connection for that. And that was just like, so, so outside of anything of my experience, it was just a little overwhelming. Now it's like, okay, yeah, I know people. So, um, but I had been sharing with them updates about it and what was going on. And, um, when we first started this and uh, they had to go back to Afghanistan to get, to be able to get visas to come back into Pakistan. Uh, we were trying to figure out how to get money there and the people in my apologetics program were the first people that donated. I mentioned that in my review on the Sound of Freedom, you know, how basically Operation Underground Railroad and Nazarene Fund, they, they made, collected $30 million, made a big deal about, you know, rescuing all these Afghan Christians and you know what they basically did was drop them off in neighboring countries with three months well in Pakistan I don't know how they what happened with other areas that they took them to but in Pakistan was a three-month medical visa which can't be renewed and basically left them there and went off to Ukraine so anyway I mentioned that but yeah so blessings of association so last week I did a 
a stream on the dangers of associations. Um, and I mentioned that one of the things that um, one of our youth pastors at church used to say is that, you know, you are who you run with. And I think that's true. And it doesn't mean that you can't um, have any affiliation with people who don't make the best choices. But I think that as far as close associations, you have to be very cautious about who you let into your inner circle or create ties to. And, um, hey, how are you? Uh, I remember there was a, when I first started going to the church I go to now, there's um, a pastor, his name is, his name is Quinonis McGowan. He actually is pastoring a church in, called The Ark in Dayton, Texas. And, but he was pastor here and, um, people call him Pastor Q, but he would, a lot of times he would go up and he would give the benediction and he would pray and like after you left that, after the, the prayer, you would just know you were blessed. I mean, you just knew he had power prayers, prayers at work. And um, I heard that they were, on Wednesdays, they were having a power prayer class that he was teaching. And I was like, okay, well, I want to go to that class. Um, I remember hearing, I think it was Perry Stone saying at one time that everyone knows that David killed Goliath, but what people overlook a lot of times is that there's an account in the Bible that five, Goliath had five brothers, and they were killed by David's mighty men. And he said, the moral of the story is if you want to kill giants, then hang around giant killers. And if you want to do a thing, then hang around people who are successful at it. And I um, wanted to have prayer that worked. I wanted to be able to pray and, you know, have that, uh, that confidence that God was hearing and doing. And so I started going to that power, power prayer class. I was in it for several years. Um, and eventually I joined his Bible study and that's the, he's not in the church anymore, but I'm still in that Bible study that he started. And it just really makes a difference about who you're around. And if you're around people whose lives are a mess, again, I'm not saying that not to be around people if they don't have their act together. Hey, Christy. <laughs> yes, great life principle. Yeah, Christy has, she's has a, um, a YouTube channel at uh, Dostoevsky in Space. She is very good at creating awesome communities of um, people talking about great things. If um, she runs um, reading, uh, reading sessions for different books. And um, she's also contributed to, she's contributed to an unexpected journal. I needed um, a beta reader for a project and she got me, hooked me in with a great, great person, perfect person for um, the book that um, I was working on and so not my book but I just need a beta reader for a book but um, yeah it's like knowing the right people is uh, makes all the difference it makes big projects so much easier but um, it's just if you're around people that are constantly making bad decisions then and you do the same things they do then you're gonna have the same results so if you are around people who have bad relationships and you know their family's a mess and you do the same things they do then you're probably going to have the same results i've been watching a, a channel recently that he does a commentary on my 600 pound life and almost all of them they have people the people that are trying to lose the weight either have enablers or they have people that are doing the uh yeah she's Christy's friend, Chris, that is awesome. He's a perfect, perfect person but for that book. But, um, you know, if you don't have, you can do it on your own, but it makes it a lot, a lot more difficult. And, you know, I think that you can do good work on your own, but if you're going to have any 
um, great work and a big project, you have to have a good team. And you know, I think back of all the the things that I've been involved in. I mean, the or big jobs. I mean, big projects. We just we had a team. I mean, we had. Um, it wasn't always a big team, but it was a, a committed team, a team of people that worked together on things. Uh, like when I did an Easter event picnic on the park, we had four core people to begin with, and then we pulled more people in. Um, when we started an unexpected journal, we had just people in the apologetics program, and there are so many people that contribute and involve, are involved in it. Uh, Zach Schmal was the managing editor, and I mean, I can't, we are still, he stepped down and we're still in just trying to adjust to him um, stepping out and people replacing him, but he, he did an amazing amount of work, but he wasn't the only one. We had a lot of people contributing and um, nobody could do it by yourself. And Chrissy says, so it's true. And if the project is blessed by God, he will often provide the right team for the job. Yes, exactly. Thank you for that comment because that's a good reminder. Yeah, that's it's absolutely true with um, with what, with the journal where it's at right now. So we had Zach that was a managing editor. He's amazing. I, I was just thinking about this this week. I was going to send my newsletter out and I haven't, and just mentioned this, I haven't put it out yet, but... I don't, it's really, Zach and I worked on an unexpected journal for five years together. This is our sixth year of the journal. His last issue that he did was um, the spring issue. But we just, we just worked so well together and we didn't really, we just kind of filled in the blanks and it wasn't just, there was a lot of, sometimes it's overwhelming and there's some craziness involved, but it was just fun. I just had a lot of fun working on it with him. And so that's been kind of difficult letting that go. Not really. It hasn't been super difficult because I've been so busy with other things. But this last issue that's coming, we're waiting for a few final things. But um, we're, we're having the next issue that's coming out for September is on play and prayer. Like how what we do shapes us. And uh, as I've been going through this, it's been really difficult. Um, I've been really emotional about Zach not being involved. And... Um, Thanks, Christy. So she said, I'll be praying for you as you look for replacements for Zach. Yeah, we have we have replacements. We just are um, just he, he did so much and he just whatever whatever needed to happen, it, it, he just would make it happen, even if other people didn't step up. And that was the thing I just realized yesterday because I can figure out why why am I getting so emotional about him not being involved? It didn't really hit me. In, in this this uh, summer issue and we're just still working through it I guess but it was just I knew I could trust him to get it done and I would step in whenever I could but even some of the things that I normally did if I couldn't do it he would he would do it to help me out and he was just I knew he was faithful I mean I knew I knew that it would not only it would get done it would be done well and we would one way or the other we would make the deadline and um, so I don't know, I don't know why that makes me so emotional, but he just, he just was. And so the people that have replaced him, we've actually split it up into, cause he did way too much. I mean, he had very, carried such a heavy load on that, but we have a president of the board and an editor in chief, and now we have issue editors for each issue. These are all things too two issue editors for each issue. And these are all things that Zach was doing. We haven't even, you know, gotten to any of the other, the other tasks, but you know, the people that we have for those positions, like Jason Smith is president of the board. He literally wrote, no joke, a best-selling book. He was the co-author. So he wrote for this, um, the book for this guy who is the CEO of a company that um, they basically ramped up ventilator production in like in under a month and they were going to think it was going to take, you know, several months to do what they did in like three weeks 
I think it was 28 because I think it's like how to save the world in 28 days. And um, so what the book is about is about how they created a system of getting to make sure that they had, they could, they could ramp up the production and that it was absolutely would not fail, you know, because they had to make sure that everything was exactly right. And Jason wrote that book. He wrote the book on creating systems, which is what we are really doing now is we are um, basically explaining how we do it, what we, what it is that we do. So other people can step in and do some of these things. And then Jasmine is editor in chief and she has like, we, we had a board meeting this last week and it was just so amazing. I mean, they were just talking about like ideas for next year and just a, I wish it was recorded because it was so awesome. And I mean, she's just such a great thinker and she's an amazing writer and apologetics as an area of study is just really important to her personally because it had a big impact not only on her father and coming to faith, but also um, her. She uh, she said I had you know apologetics helped her when she was going kind of through a difficult time separating the toxic things in Christian culture from the reality of the gospel. And so she's like, she's like, we have the perfect people for that. And now we just need to need a bigger team. <laughs> we need a bigger team because there's still more with that. And um, I've told, you know, even with like the Afghans, I w I've been telling them. So at the very beginning, I'm like, we have to work as a team. We have to work as a team. We can't be like, you know, because there's, you know, they're in a very stressful situation. And sometimes, um, you know, one person will have distrust towards someone else. And I'm like, we have to, we have to be willing, able to work together and share information because, you know, I'm sitting over here half a world away. Um, and I, I'm not there on the ground. And so really uh, what it, what I do is I just kind of, I'm a facilitator. I like collect information, find resources that people share with me. And then when somebody needs something, you know, I have that information to share. So from the beginning, that's been, that's been it. Like I, and I knew that from the beginning, you know, we had to have, we had to have a team. And at the very beginning in October, when I didn't know what to do, I was like, God, you got to help me. I need a team. And then I realized, well, I have one. I mean, all of the people that are there, I mean, they are competent, intelligent adults. I mean, they're on my team. We just, they can, and they have been very resourceful in finding options for things. It's just now I need more people on the team in other areas. So anyway, uh, but thanks. Yeah, thanks for that reminder. Like God is faithful. So he'll bring, bring the right people that we need. But I was talking about the blessings of associations. It really, it was really about building communities, and uh, it's actually going to be our. This has turned into a an unexpected journal theme uh, stream today, but our uh, issue, fall issue for next year is going to be on community and chaos, and I'm going to be the editor on that. I'll be an absolute expert on it at uh, by then. So anyway, but um, this is uh, Holly Ordway. She was really started the apologetics program at HBU, and she's amazing at building community. I mean, absolutely amazing. She um, the the apologetics program they did. You could take it in person, but most people took it online and finished it all online, and so the community really, it was opposite of what normally you would think because normally you would have probably think you would have a tighter community if you were in person. And that was not the case. I mean, she had started this, created this, this Facebook group and she's really, really excellent at creating online communities and getting people engaged, you know, even though you're not there in person. And the people that were went through the program when she was there, you can really see that. Um, I actually 
this is before I joined the apologetics program, and I think even before I applied, I had a dream, and I didn't know, and she was actually in the dream. I didn't know her at the time, but I was, we were in this courtyard of, of this university, and I knew it was for a writer's conference, and, and she was there. I didn't, I didn't know her until a couple of years later, but um, looking back on the dream, there was some, I didn't know at the time, I didn't know what the dream meant. Now I do, but um, I had another dream after that where uh, I was in a, in a time when I was trying to decide what I was going to be doing. I was, I knew God had told me to leave a situation. I really hadn't quite given it up in my heart. I still thought things were going to work out, you know, um, as they were and they didn't. And, uh, so I had been praying about it. There was a whole lot of things that had happened. Um, and when I look back on that, it was almost a year when I was getting these, God was like, I had like a literal visions. I had the same word of knowledge from two people. I had dreams <laughs> that were telling me things. And then just God, you know, like kind of this inner knowing, like I knew I had to, I knew I had to leave, but, and I knew that there were certain things, um, certain issues that I had to, uh, confront before I left that didn't actually, the discussion was dismissed, but you know, that's not, that's not the point, you know, you have to, if God tells you that you have to, um, address a situation or an issue you're not responsible for the outcome or other people's response. You're responsible for doing and being obedient to the direction. And if your words or warning is um, ignored, then that's on them. That's not on you. But anyway, so all of this had happened. I was still, I had, looking back, I had, clear direction. I didn't see it as clear at the time, but I had really clear, clear direction about what I was supposed to be doing or I didn't know what was coming next, but I knew I was supposed to leave, but I was still praying about it really hadn't kind of released it in my heart. And so, um, this is the one thing one of our pastors said one time, sometimes, you know, if you're not listening to what God is telling you, sometimes he'll just start talking about something else. And that's kind of what happened. He started kind of redirecting my focus to something else. Cause I wasn't really paying attention, I guess. And, um, I had this dream and this was when I look back on all the, the dreams that I really remember, this is like the coolest dream I have ever had. And we were, Yeah. Yeah. We're just called to be obedient. Yeah. But in the dream, I, we were, there were all these flying cars and we were going to a drive-in movie and in the dream, I'm thinking, okay, so how do you see a drive-in movie in flying cars? Do you like, is it like the Jetsons where you're hovering? Do you land? But in the dream, you know, we, we landed and we went and we were watching this big screen and there was this movie playing and I, car uh, vehicles in dreams represent your calling. And um, so this is like a bunch of little people going, you know, it's individuals, not big works, but a, a bunch of people that are in separate callings or ministries, but all flying along in the same direction. And that is exactly what I see in the people in the apologetics program. So everybody's doing different things. You know, we have quite a few people that are helping us with the journal, but even in that people are doing different things and, but we're all kind of going along in the same direction and are not kind of in the same direction. We are going in the same direction and it's just cool to see what everybody is doing. And when you're around people that are doing, it's easier to do yourself. And so I, we have people that have, not only publish books, but they're, you know, out writing. And so it doesn't seem like this big, amazing thing to publish a book or submit to a journal because you're around and with people who are doing the same things. And so, um, 
I guess I would say that if you think something, if you feel like you're called to do something and it feels like it seems so impossible to you, then maybe, maybe it's just you're hanging with the wrong people. And maybe, um, maybe that's something to pray about. Maybe you need to find the right crowd and the right crew to do what it is that you know is coming next. Um, and not thinking you have to create everything from yourself. Because if I think that in the United States, we're so individualistic that we, number one, don't recognize and appreciate how much other people are a part of who we are and what we have and what we're able to do. But also there's so much pressure because we think that we have to do it all our own, on our own. And um, nobody does. And I've shared this before. I didn't. I don't have a slide. I was gonna try to be shorter today and obviously that's not happening, but um, they, there's a book called Bridges Out of Poverty by Ruby Payne. And she explains that there's three, there, in classes of people, based on income, like poor, middle class, and the wealthy, that the, the poor usually focus on entertainment, the middle class focus on work, but, and their efforts, putting in their efforts, but the wealthy focus on relationships. And, you know, a wealthy mindset is appreciating really the pricelessness of the, the relationships that you have because again a lot of opportunities you know has nothing to do that people have and the benefits people have have nothing to do with their own hard work or um the merits of who they are or what they can do it has to do with you know who they know and that and that's just the truth i mean it sounds we don't like to acknowledge that because we like to think, oh, I did it all myself. Well, that's not true. Nobody does it all, all on their own. And um, so anyway, why don't we move on to the Afghanistan updates. And what I do each week is I just give an overview of what's been going on in Afghanistan or related to Afghanistan. And this is just as a reminder that the Taliban are terrorists and thugs, that what we have left is a complete and total mess. And I do this because there's a lot of gaslighting um, from the US State Department and uh, other NATO allies because we don't want to acknowledge what a mess that we've left or that something needs to be done. So I just share this as a reminder on my website at racewalk.org, I will have an article for this live stream where I'll have links to everything. Uh, so you can, um, you know, go and read some of this for yourself. So anyway, that's usually up. Try to get up in a day or two after the live stream. And this also, these updates I do um, publish on podcast platforms too, the audio version. So anyway, but on to Afghanistan. So there's another report of more humanitarian aid workers um, being killed and this I went over last week, but the U.S. is giving the Taliban, I don't know, I don't, I've heard different reports, like it's $40 million every two weeks or something like that, but the U.S. is propping up the Taliban as they are, but none of the aid is going to the people. And so all of, all of the humanitarian aid, like humanitarian organizations are running the schools, the hospitals, providing the food, and they're, they're not, you would think that the Taliban would, you know, since NGOs are taking care of their job, you would, that they would at least be hands off. They're not, they, you know, there's multiple humanitarian workers have been killed. This is another report of uh, more trees being cut down by the Taliban. It's just, uh, the last week, I think I shared a story that it was, um, the, there were trees that were cut down in that Bamian province, which is Hazara, this is in a different project, the province. Human Afghanistan is in this dire um, humanitarian 
crisis right now because the majority of their people, you know, are, are living in poverty. There's a really uh, horrible food shortage, and then the Taliban are going around cutting down fruit trees. So, because that makes total sense. So, this is a story about the someone commenting that the Taliban, you know, they took over the government, such as it is, but they don't even know what they're doing. They're like completely incompetent. And my comment on this on Twitter was like, it sounds like the Texas legislature, because what we have seen just in our recent session is unbelievably ridiculous laws being passed. One example of this is there was a, a bill that allowed chaplains to basically replace um, counselors in public schools. And there was a letter that went out from, is on the wrong? No. There was a letter that went out from um, the, from actual chaplains to public schools, encouraging them not to do that. And this was a statement by them explaining why this was why this was so bad on multiple on multiple counts um, for religious liberty, um, but also that there was no th there's no requirements for these people to be called chaplains. All they have to do is go through a background check, and there's like no no training required. And they can be a, a chaplain and this, you know, be, replace mental health counselors. So the thing with this is that we have legislatures that pass this, which is just completely ridiculous. And what that shows me is that they have absolutely no um, value or appreciation for actual education because there are certified chaplains. There are chaplain certification programs. This public school um, chaplain, there's an association where they can get certified there, which doesn't require anything. And they're a, an organization that just started a year ago. So all that really is, it's grift. It's setting up conditions where somebody can get this association get, can get paid for certification, which it really isn't even a certification. But actual chaplains are, they, they have to go, have education requirements. They have to, especially if you are um, cert board certified, there is a training pro pro that you have to go through. What I've read and researched, because I was thinking about doing this um, for hospital chaplains, chaplaincy, is that it's the equivalent of a master's program. And for those board certifications, they have to um, have a degree, a master, a, a, another master's degree, either they prefer MDivs, but they will, other theological degrees will suffice for that. But they have to be from certified um, universities. And so this bogus this bogus chaplains association that's certifying for schools they don't even require that i mean it's and the thing is we have a legislature that they're okay with that that somebody you can just put a label on them and they have so little respect for education and true qualifications they just think that's okay so it's they're really no different from the taliban in that they're just ignorant and they're just I think they're just completely um, paid off. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. So anyway, what is this one? Oh, shoot. So, um, darn it. Oh, wait. Okay. So the other thing that was just announced this week, and I'm really not quite sure it wasn't really clear in the tweet, but the Taliban are requiring people to learn Pashto or else they're going to lose their job. 
Now I'm assuming this is government jobs because they can't just require people in all types of jobs to learn Pashu, but um, this is, again, the person points out that most of the Taliban are literate. So in the 20 years when the, um, the native forces were there, there were schools. And I have seen the, um, most of the people in my group that are under 30, they have uh, pretty decent English skills. I've seen some of their transcripts and they learned, Persian is the majority language in Afghanistan. This is um, an article on translate, from Translators Without Borders. I found different numbers about language in Afghanistan, but according to them, 77% of the population speaks Dari or um, Persian. So Dari is a dialect of Persian, and 48% uh, speaks Pashto. So Pashto, before the NATO allies came in, they were kind of the dominant ethnic group in not only in Afghanistan, but also in Pakistan. And so I've seen high school transcripts of some of the kids and they learned, um, they had classes in Persian, obviously, as the, the primary language of the nation, but they also studied English and Pashto. So the kids that came through the education system, you know, in the 20 years before the Taliban took over again, they're trilingual. The Taliban could have been doing, they could have had their people go to, to school, but rather than valuing education and being um, equipped and ready to have responsibility, they were out, you know, causing chaos and de destroying. And so most of their people are illiterate. And there was a story several months ago that the Taliban were sending their fighters back to school for 12th grade just so they could get a, a diploma, which what kind of sense does that make? You know, a piece of paper doesn't solve ignorance or illiteracy. Just because you have a, you know, you defer, you know, confer a degree doesn't make, doesn't make that person have that education or understanding. It's just a facade. So they could have been, but, and, but now they are in control and their people are ignorant and unequipped and unprepared. And so they still, rather than building a country, they're still going around and terrorizing their fellow Afghans because that's all they know how to do. They don't know how to do anything else. They're terrorists and thugs. So anyway, more on education. There were just university exams. Women weren't allowed to enter the university. They're basically, women are being erased from society. And uh, this is just so, I mean, if you haven't like thought about it, it it's so devastating because in this, yeah, it is crazy. It, it's crazy. And we're just like, we just don't want to look at it and don't want to acknowledge the situation. But we have, um, there's this one, one lady that was teaching the kids in the, the first um, church that I, home church that I connected with. And she worked for a lot of um, NGOs and she was teaching them English and she speaks English well. And she had an opportunity for uh, asylum with Sweden, but Sweden is requiring a uh, valid Pakistan visas to give them before they will give them visas to go to Sweden. So just to make this clear, because this is super crazy, but they escaped to, pa to Pakistan because they worked for former NATO allies, right? Pakistan, I still don't quite have my head wrapped around the logic and the dynamics of all that's going on with Pakistan. But Pakistan, it's super difficult to get a Pakistan visa as an Afghan. 
December through March. Total drama about that. So she has an opportunity for asylum with a NATO ally, Sweden, but Sweden won't give her a, a visa for Sweden to go to Sweden. So she's already in Pakistan. Sweden won't give her a visa unless if she has a valid Pakistan visa. Pakistan won't issue one until she, she has to go back to Afghanistan, apply for a visa to Pakistan to come back so then she can go to and get asylum in Sweden. Is that not insane? So they did that and their visa application to Pakistan was denied. I found there was somebody who had a connection with somebody who could uh, apply for tourist visas for them. So that, uh, I guess, will come through, but I have to find money for it because those are like way more expensive. They should be, it's just ridiculous. The whole situation is ridiculous, but she at least has the opportunity because she has an education and she did the work with these with these other NGOs and NATO allies. So somebody who hasn't had an education or didn't have um, those opportunities, they have, they have nothing. And we actually have women in that situation right now that were, you know, they're old enough that they were growing up when the Taliban were still in power before 2001. You know, so from the time when Russia left Afghanistan, the Taliban came in, they were super, I think it was 1996 when they had complete control over it, but they were um, doing the same things then that they're doing now. And so pe women who grew up during that time could not go to school. And so we have, we have women that they really haven't been educated at all. And so what what do you do i mean what is the path out for them if they go to afghanistan they're basically it's just so horrific another another story that i got yesterday just yesterday somebody sent me a message for help for a woman and her family she what i think she has five girls and a son her husband worked for um was worked for the formal republic and i think he was i think he was connected with a political party as well as recruited for the former republic military he had escaped to iran originally in 2021 but then someone assured him that he would be okay if he came back so he returned to afghanistan he's been missing since july 15th 2022 she doesn't even know what's happened to him she's tried to find him she can't she doesn't know where he is and so one of the people that um, is in our group asked for help for her and they want to leave Afghanistan because again her husband's missing she doesn't even know what's happening to him but there's someone who is friends with the Taliban and he's been harassing her and demanding that he is able to take one of her daughters as his second wife. And they they just operate with complete impunity, but this is the thing, it's like, okay, so there's a whole bunch of things. They need passports, they need visas, they would need visas to come to Pakistan. They also need to travel because women can't travel by themselves. So that's even just moving is a complete, entirely different issue like going to you know border crossings is super dangerous I mean it's just it's just no, none of that is easy but even if you get them out then what then what so then it's going to be you know, the help for living in Pakistan I said well what would be the plan and he said well they would uh, they would want to apply for UNHCR refugee certification and get resettled somewhere else Okay, that's really a crapshoot because I know one person, the chicken farmer, that was also a barber, that has actual certifications. And 
I have, so he has a certification. We do have a couple other people that have the certifications, but we haven't had anybody resettled yet. And so when you look at that, it's like, okay, so are you saying that she's going to need help ongoing? Like she's going to need somebody to support her all going and what's, what's the plan? And I said, well, does she know English? And what is the plan? Like if you get resettled somewhere else, what is the plan? What is it that you're going to do? And if they've had, they haven't been educated at all, what is the plan? What, I mean, what, what can you do? This is a mess. So at least with people who have, you know, they, they have an education, they, they know English, they have work experience, it's difficult and it's hard. And, you know, we're, we're still working on English skills, but there's options, but it's really difficult for people who are in, like, even if you make all those things work, then what? Then what are you going to do? I don't know. So anyway, but that's the situation the Taliban are creating. They're creating a situation where women have no options and no place in public. It's just really, really horrific. So, um, This is a, stories like this all the time. You know, this is a uh, story about, yet again, a tal a tal I guess an individual Taliban member is called a Talib, but he was attempted to rape a girl. The, the townspeople basically chased him off. Um, and I mentioned last week that I've been hearing more stories of resistance from people. But um, this is a story that I came across I thought was pretty awesome. It's a story from, can't remember. It's like the early 1900s when the uh, people were fighting back against a, a really oppressive leader, and there was a, among the resistance were a group of women. So they have a history of warrior women in Afghanistan, and there I mentioned last week that there was a they had been tracking down a group of women for months and. The last couple of weeks, they, there were a bunch of stories about how they had arrested protesters, the women, they, just in a home. They weren't even out anywhere, but they were, they're so, so afraid of women that they, even just the thought of any uh, disagreement or, or protest, they have to try to shut down. So, um, this is, I was going to read, go over the Doha Agreement and the uh, ag agreement with the former republic. I didn't do that this week. It's been a week. But this is something that Scott Richards points out that the Doha agreement explicitly states that the Taliban, or they call themselves the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, is not recognized by the United States. And that the only, uh, if there was any sort of recognition at all, that it would depend on the um, intra-Afghan intra talks with the other groups. That you have to be able to play nice if we want to give you any, any sort of uh, credibility or recognition at all, which obviously they didn't. So um, even in our... It's not a peace agreement. It was basically, it is just, that Doha agreement was ridiculous. But even in that, it's clear that the Taliban do not have any validity. And this is another story that came out. Uh, so Zalma Khalizad was the author of the Doha agreement along with Mark Meadows. I've mentioned before that if you listen to episode 45 of Generation Jihad, Bill Roggio said that he talked to somebody in the former administration that said they just wanted, you know, something to pop off as a win. They wanted some sort of, of agreement and really didn't care what was in it. And that's basically what we got, this ridiculous um, set of terms that where the Taliban don't commit to anything and we just are running off and basically agreeing, we're agreeing to support, um, I, it sounds to me like when I read it, we're going to be supporting the Afghanistan government, not the Taliban, but it's kind of turned into that. 
and that we won't interfere in Afghanistan again and we'll give them money and support. So it was nothing. It was like, it, it was more like, who was it? Was it Woodrow Wilson that uh, was part of the Treaty of Versailles, the agreement after World War One, where he, I did an interview or a video on this, um, it's on the 1918 pandemic, uh, this book, and they said that he had been, he had been, the French wanted some really strong terms at, against Germany, so the, all their ally, all of Germany's allies in World War One had already um, made peace, right, and so Germany was the only one on their side left standing, and so they got uh, they had to bear the brunt of all the reparations, which they just recently p paid off. I mean, just like, I don't know, it was 2017 or something like that. I can't remember. It was a crazy, it took them a crazy long time to pay it off. And um, Wilson had been, I hope I have that right. I hope that's the right president. But he had been resisting the French demands because the France wanted to stick it to Germany, you know, because they're longtime enemies. And... But then he caught the um, the flu, the 1918 flu, and it hit him really hard. He was he said he was never the same after that. And he, when he came back, he went to the negotiate uh, negotiation table, and he gave the, uh, France everything they wanted. And it was really, um, really, you know, unfair terms to Germany because Germany, yes, they you know, were aggressors in World War One, but they weren't the only ones and but they had to bear their reparations for everybody, for the whole thing. And that really led to um, you know, this resentment about that they were stabbed in the back because it it was some unreasonable terms and gave, you know, a space for Hitler to come in and so you can almost look at I mean, I think you can make the argument that that treaty led to the Holocaust because it gave space for for um, Hitler to stir up this bitterness and resentment. But anyway, so it's kind of like it's kind of like that because we it's it's just a worthless document that basically ties our hands and doesn't put any conditions on the ta on Taliban at all. But with this person, there's this article that came out where somebody with the CIA said that they felt like uh, Zalmay Khalzad lost his objectivity. No joke. I mean, I've had people tell me, okay, he, Kalazad says this isn't true, but I've had, I've seen people say that Zalmay Kalazad was basically a lobbyist for the Taliban before the Doha agreement. Um, I had somebody else tell me that he had, he had uh, tribal ties to the Hikini network. And so, you know, he's, a, he's for them. You know, he is a naturalized U.S. citizen but he has this affinity with the Hakani network and the Taliban, and that's who we sent, you know, over to negotiate for our entire country. Which, by another um, poll that was done, there was only like four percent of, of the population of Afghanistan support the Taliban. So, anyway, but it's interesting that you have. A former CIA member say that because usually they don't, they haven't been saying things like that. So now it seems like maybe they might be putting the blame on Kalzad for the mess that the Doha agreement is. I don't know. So this is a thing that just came across my feet. I have not watched it yet, but PBS actually has a, they're putting out a three part docuseries on the war in Afghanistan. I haven't watched it yet, but if anybody else watches it, let me know and let me know what your thoughts are. Um, this is a, so this is a post by Stephen Jensen. He's somebody, if you're interested, he's somebody that's really good to follow on Twitter about Afghanistan. He'll post pictures of Afghanistan in, um, you know, years past in the decades before the Afghan invasion or the Russian invasion. And um, he's writing a book, so he's a, someone that is uh, good to follow. But he points out that you know the Afghanistan has been the dynamics in Afghanistan have really been uh, critical in a lot of international dynamics and conflicts. 
And so we kind of want to pull a curtain over this and not look at this anymore, but you know, we still, we can't, you know, this is, we are, even though we don't want to admit it, we are still involved and it is what goes on there affects not only, you know, it's beyond their borders. It, it affects, affects what's going on in the entire world. So, um, so what is this one? This one is, uh, there were militants coming from Afghanistan and I don't even know how to pronounce it, Tajikistan. And they got, they confiscated weapons for them. And this is just more evidence that there's, you know, multiple terrorist groups that are harboring in Afghanistan. And again, we are ignoring this. So this article, I don't, I don't even know what this is. This is Marco Rubio. And he says that the, the U.S. Chamber, Afghan Chamber of Commerce is collaborating with the Taliban and helping U.S. companies make money in Afghanistan. Okay, that may be true, and there have been other stories that are kind of related to that. I have no idea what his point was supposed to be because I looked at that article, and that's not what it's about at all. What that article is about is that we left our equipment there, and the Taliban took it. Like, they, we left all the stuff, and they're using it now. That's what the article is saying. And so I don't know what Rubio's point was. I really don't. But it is true that um, there are... Uh, companies that are in different in different areas that are negotiating with the Taliban and you know exploiting resources. Um, there was I shared the story last week about you know people are really raping like archaeological sites and selling things off. There's I mean it is true that that is happening, but I don't know what Ruby is talking about because I don't know if you didn't read the article or what or what his point was supposed to be there because the article doesn't say what he's he's tweeting about so this is the other thing um there was this whole thing and i i did not see the original post or tweets but there was some deal on twitter where somebody there was a, a woman that just shared like what she was doing in a day and she was single and somehow that triggered a bunch of people that a single woman could be happy on her own. And uh, it, when I was reading the reactions to people, um, I, it really reminded me a lot of what the uh, the Taliban do. You know, they can't allow any any woman to begin unattached. I mean, they can't. I've shared some of the things that they've done. Like, you know, a woman can't even. They've closed salons. Uh, women basically aren't allowed to work. Um, they aren't allowed to travel a certain distance without not only without a man. But without the senior, the senior male figure in their family, they—I have a hard time believing this is true. But I guess it could be with them because the Taliban is so ridiculous. But there was somebody saying that they wouldn't even allow women to be in uh, go in taxis that they have to, you know, in in this in a seat, but they had to be in the trunk. I, I, that's really hard for me to believe. But they are kind of—they're just beyond ridiculous. So I guess that is. I don't know if it's possible anywhere it's possible with with the taliban but they have to try to shut them down in every single every single area that they can and it's like they can't it's just this ingrained misogyny you know it has to be power and control and that's really what this attitude towards this woman was it's like not even seeing her as a human being it's just outliving her life right content in who she is because she's not attached to a man then it's offensive to people which is just it's ridiculous it's as ridiculous as the Taliban are so I don't know I, I don't sometimes some of the things I read I think that's so crazy 
I mean, people have to have some brain damage from COVID or something, because why would you get all worked up about that? So anyway, other interesting thing that came across was um, that somebody post shared um, a record of, they're just pointing out like how integral and integrated that the U.S. and Afghanistan has been for years. And so that an Afghan-American actually fought at Gettysburg and Afghans have a long history um, in and with the United States. So I thought that was that was interesting. And moving on to kind of more U.S. topics, this is just from the National Immigration Forum and they were, this isn't specifically about Afghanistan, but just immigration in general. I and mean, we need to like stop seeing immigration as a political uh, drum to beat and look at it as, you know, we are welcoming um, fellow human beings, imagers of God to be part of our community. And every single one of us, other than Native Americans, we come from immigrants. And so we should treat them at least as well, you know, what would, if we were in the same position and we needed to start a new life somewhere, how would we want people to treat us? And they're just pointing out like how much, how much they're speaking specifically about dreamers in these, these numbers, but how much they benefit us. I've shared that before that like in immigrants, uh, in the first year that an immigrant is, comes in through, oh, they, um, I think that one I shared was for refugees, but, uh, Lark abroad shared some numbers that it costs the United States about $15,000 for a refugee to come over, but they, um, in the first year, I think that the government collects, like in taxes, something like 16, 17,000. So we come out ahead. And when you're looking at dollars and cents, we come out ahead. And so why we have this anti-immigration policy is just absolutely ridiculous. So moving on to ridiculousness, talked about this a couple times, Greg Abbott and his uh, death trap, um, trying to block um, uh, immigrants from coming over. Um, still a lot of drama about this. I, I haven't looked recently. There's been a lot of court cases about it. There was uh, the federal government filed a lawsuit against them and Abbott is saying, you know, we, you know, we can do what we want and uh, the judge is saying, no, you can't. And the last thing I, I saw was three days ago, Texas was over, it was ordered to remove that buoy border. It has, you know, they have barbed wire in the river to, you know, if people come across it, you know, they get caught up in this barbed wire. That has, those buoys have blades in between them and they, they found dead bodies on it. And it it was just, it's just absolutely despicable that the, what it is that they do, like they like want to insist on killing people, I guess. So anyway, um, those are just some thoughts for the day. And so, yeah, thanks for joining me, Christy. Thanks for the comments, but I will post this online and uh, on the article. And I'll talk to you guys all later.